Happy New Year. The new year is here and we are excited for the conversations we will have in 2023. For now, we're still doing a recap of older episodes while we get back into the office and up and running. We hope you enjoy. From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center, and by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. First, we talked to Dr. Jenna about combining health and economic data to come up with interesting questions. So um, the last time you were here, we kind of got into your background and how you started out in medicine and economics. You uh, did a PhD at the University of Chicago, and then you did a medical degree. So uh, is that that's that's correct? correct? Yeah, it's a long time ago. And you've um, done a lot of interesting work and some in your work kind of um, you look at some of the questions that we might not think about some of the some interesting ways to combine health data and economic data. Um, and I wanted to ask you about some of the recent work that you've done since we last had you on the podcast, which is about two years ago now. Um, and one of the studies that you did uh, was looking at patients being prescribed opioids for the first time in the ER based on who their physician is. And this sort of this idea of a natural experiment. Um, could you tell us about that work? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So the, you know, I'm sure people who are listening could could identify people in their own lives who have um, who were prescribed an opioid that they maybe didn't need, and uh, some fraction of these individuals may be on an opioid long term. And it's not uncommon to hear a story about, let's say, a soccer mom who had her uh, had a tooth extracted and was prescribed an opioid, and now one year later is uh, continue, continue to be on an opioid. And you know when we think about people who, are, who have chronic pain or who are, are dependent on opioids, there's a certain stigma of what that person looks like. But you know, I don't think that stigma is, is entirely correct and anybody can become addicted. That's why they're addictive substances. The question though is how do you show this? In medicine, we do randomized controlled trials, but there's no randomized controlled trial that's gonna randomize patients to opioids versus not and then follow them up a year or two later to see whether or not they remain on opioids. So even though it makes a lot of sense that even a single opioid could lead to long-term use, it's actually difficult to show in a, in a rigorous and elegant way. And the, the study that you're referring to, I think the, the key insight there was you know, there, there actually happens to be a circumstance in which patients do get randomized to differing probabilities of being prescribed an opioid, and that happens in the emergency department. When you go to the ED as a patient, you don't know the ED doctor who's going to take care of you, and the ED doctor doesn't know you. And what that means is that if you look across a number of ED doctors within the same emergency department, there is likely to be substantial variation in their practice styles. We already know that's true across many other decisions that a doctor may make, but it hasn't been shown that doctors within the same ED vary a lot in terms of how likely they are to prescribe an opioid 
or or what the strength of the dosing is that they may prescribe. And in this study, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, you know, a year or two ago, what we showed was that within the same emergency department, the likelihood that a patient is discharged from the ED with an opioid varies by almost threefold, depending on who they see. So we're not comparing patients who are going to different EDs. You know, some EDs may be in areas where opioids are more likely to be prescribed. We're talking about patients who come to the same emergency department. There's a threefold difference in the likelihood that they're going to walk out with an opioid that is unrelated to why they came to the hospital in the first place. And the reason why is because the patients are essentially randomized to the ED doctor. And what's driving that variation is preferences of the ED doctor or habits, prescribing habits. Now, it's, I think it's somewhat interesting to show that there's this large variation, but what I think is most interesting is to say, well, if you're a patient and you were seen by a high prescribing doctor, what is the likelihood that one year later you're going to remain on an opioid compared to if you had been seen by a low prescribing doctor? And what we found was that patients who were randomized to seeing these high-intensity high doctors, prescribing doctors, they're about 20% more likely to be on a long-term opioid, like now one year out, uh, compared to patients who were, who, were, who were initially seen by a low prescribing doctor. And the summary is that that, I think, adds some credence to the idea that a single prescription uh, to someone who was not using opioids before they came to the emergency department, before they saw care, that a single pres- prescription could lead to long-term use. Of opioids. Right. And the example you gave at the beginning, the soccer mom who gets a tooth extracted and is still on an opioid one year out, is that that type of time frame, is that typical for the type of pain that you would see from? No. In fact, I mean, in, in some, in, depending on the surgery or, you know, what the reason is that you got the opioid, sometimes you need you don't need an opioid. Sometimes a, a week or so would be enough, but certainly a year out would not be typical. So what, what's almost certainly going on here is that someone was prescribed an opioid for short-term pain relief but continued to stay on the opioid long-term uh, for reasons that may be due to just kind of the sense, that the euphoria that the opioid generated, or they may have other pain issues um, that they feel are being treated by the opioid. Uh, but either way, it wasn't, it wasn't for, the, for the actual reason that they were prescribed an opioid in the first place. You talked about the patients being randomized. They're being in effect randomized because when you go to the emergency department, you're not making an appointment. It's urgent. You just go wherever the ambulance yeah. takes you or the closest one that you can get to. Yeah, that's absolutely and, and probably the, the correct term the would be quasi randomized. So they're not they're not randomized by some investigator who's conducting a randomized controlled trial. They are quasi randomized by nature. By nature, this is how emergency department works. You don't pick your doctor, you don't make an appointment and the doctor can't select certain patients who have higher propensities to be on long-term opioids. It really is effectively random. Our conversation with Dr. Blumenthal in 2019 left us wondering if we really had a penicillin allergy. How common are these allergies? Well, our most commonly reported allergy in uh, America and worldwide is penicillin. And so penicillin was uh, 
invented, um, you know, was in use by the 1940s. And uh, soon thereafter, there were reports of anaphylaxis or a life-threatening allergic reaction to penicillin. And because penicillin is one of our oldest drugs and because it was used to cure a lot of infections over a long period of time, most the most common allergy out there is penicillin just by use of a drug. Um, and so that is 10% of Americans. So that's over 30 million Americans who have an allergy on their record of a penicillin allergy. Either they remember the allergy or somebody told them about the allergy. And so it's not always a true allergy, but about um, one in 10. That's funny. I'm allergic to penicillin, but not because I actually know, because my parents told me. <laughs> I was going to say that. I don't like to blame moms because I am a mom, but there's a lot of uh, my mom told me I was allergic to penicillin mm -hmm. and I see that a lot. And that's hard um, to go through life not knowing if you are allergic or whether you're mm -hmm. not, because with penicillin allergy, there are. Um, a lot of relatives of penicillins that are used for common infections, and they're old, trusted, safe, um, safer than a lot of other antibiotics to use. And so it's hard when you have to work under the assumption you're allergic to penicillin, but you don't really know. How did you get into this work? What's your background, how you ended up here? So I'm internal medicine trained, and uh, I did my uh, internal medicine residency at Mass General Hospital. And during my residency, I saw the impact of allergies on care and just purely um, the idea that you're admitting a patient to the hospital and you look at their medical chart to sort of understand who they are before you go meet them. And uh, you'd look at the chart and you'd see so many allergies. So at least half of our patients had one or more drug allergy. And often the reason why they have those drug allergies is because somebody thought those were, that was a good medicine to prescribe them for something, right? It's not an arbitrary allergy that doesn't impact their decision-making. So we would see cancer patients allergic to their chemotherapy. We would see patients having a heart attack allergic to uh, aspirin, which they need. We would see then patients allergic to penicillin who needed penicillin or a relative. And so it was seeing the how this changed decision making um, that made me want to learn about how we uh, document and how we think about allergies and how and when we should be evaluating them further. Um, there are some tests for allergies and some tests not. And so where really the gaps are in our knowledge. Mm -hmm. Is there a way to find out if you're allergic to penicillin? I, I mean, I know the answer is yes, but how do you go about doing that, even in, in this space where you talk about people like myself who say, oh, I'm allergic to penicillin because historically my parents have told me I'm allergic to penicillin? Yeah, so with penicillin, and this is unique to penicillin right now, we mm. have an FDA-approved drug test, like a drug allergy test for penicillin. Um, uh, that doesn't mean that allergists cannot test to a whole host of other drugs. The way that the test was invented was to identify the um, the parts of penicillin, the breakdown products that we're allergic to, and sort of what happens in the body when uh, someone who is allergic to penicillin um, has a reaction. And so this test um, is a skin test and not a blood test, which would be more useful for sort of spreading across America. It's a skin test and it's been developed. Um, it's been around since 1960 and then commercially available just since 2009. So my whole sort of practice as an allergist, this kind of just came out and is um, 
uh, now we have to figure out how to use it best in people like you actually. So um, you're lucky in that you live in Boston and we have like allergy specialists who are trained to do skin tests. We have so many of them compared to the majority of the country where you might not, nobody might know how to do this. And so um, it's a um, it's a specialized procedure that just involves ex- a little extra training, um, but that any you know physician, uh, pharmacists are doing it in some states, um, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a test that really takes about forty five minutes to do, and would tell you whether or not you have an allergy to penicillin. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about ninety five percent correct, and then we get that extra five percent by giving you amoxicillin and watching you and. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's called uh, an amoxicillin challenge where I don't, the terminology is the same uh, as food allergy. We call these things challenges. We challenge you to have a reaction or not have a reaction, but it's, um, uh, we will capture uh, then almost all reactions um, either in front of us that are severe. And then also sometimes I have to tell my patients that um, really you can have a reaction that night or the next day, but usually it's more mild, but just please let me know because we will capture a lot of the reactions through that sort of testing sequence, the skin test and the challenge test. In the summer of 2019, Dr. Pandya returned to talk with us about tackling healthcare costs in America. You talked about the definition of value and the different factors you think about when you are looking at value. Could you tell us what some of the low and high value services or treatments are? Yeah. In fact, let me um, let me try something. Let me um, give you a analogy uh, for something that's not related to health, but we can all think about, and then and then try to cross over into a health example to, to hopefully make it stick. So, um, like the choice of like what smartphone we choose to buy or have um, can kind of also be viewed as this like value bang for buck scenario or like a cost quality trade-off, so to speak. So imagine like you walk into the phone store and like the cheapest, lowest quality phone you can get is like a flip phone. Okay. It works, but it's very low cost. Um, But maybe you want to upgrade like, and on the other end of the store, there's like the version 12 smartphone, the newest <laughs> thing that talks to you and like does all this stuff. Very high quality, um, high effectiveness, you know, you could say, but also really high cost. I mean, that phone costs like $2,000 or something. Mm-hmm. The flip phone's only like 50 bucks. So that just if those are your only two options, you can see there's like a delta effectiveness. There's an incremental gain in effectiveness and there's incremental costs. Um but those probably aren't the only two options. There's probably also the version 10 and the version 8 mm-hmm. and the version 4. And you could kind of construct this like, uh, we would call it the efficient frontier. But you get, it's like this like curve. And um, it would have this like, uh, oh gosh, we'd call it concave shape. But it's kind of like this curved shape where like the slope mm-hmm. is getting flatter and flatter on the kind of, um, I guess it would be effectiveness versus cost. And you, you can imagine like that maybe the upgrade from the version 10 to the version 12 will give you a little bit improvement in effectiveness, but will cost like $2,000 or something. And it's like, mm-hmm. is that bang for buck worth it? Maybe I choose based on my budget and preferences to have the version 10 or the version four. Or, you know, if I'm very, if I don't care about phones that much and I don't have a lot of money to spend, I go with the flip phone. Or on the mm-hmm. opposite side, I'm very rich. I don't care. I just want the most expensive <laughs> thing. I'm going to go with the version 12. So we're, we make this these choices all the time. And so that's the kind of hopefully very accessible um, scenario. Let me cross over now into health. Um, mm-hmm. There's a patient who comes in with, um, they're maybe like called intermediate risk for uh, heart disease. 
they, they might have some symptoms and we want to know if there's some treatable ischemia. I'm going to give you a secret. I'm not a cardiologist. I work with them. <laughs> I'm the PhD. I work with them. So if I get some of the technical <laughs> terms a little okay. off, yeah, you can, you can Luckily, edit that. Or none keep... of us are cardiologists either. Okay. So this is a safe space for this example. But like, okay, so this, this patient comes in, um, they, they're, um, they might have treatable ischemia, um, but we don't know. So there are different like diagnosis strategies we could use. The most expensive and intensive is like the cath. Like we go in, it's the most expensive, but we know for sure whether or not it's in there. Um, that's kind of like the version 12 phone. Um, <laughs> the flip phone option is just kind of like wait and see. Let's just see if they develop symptoms. We'll just kind of do, you know, lowest cost, but perhaps lowest effectiveness because we don't know what's going on. And then there are some intermediate options in between like cardiac MR, cardiac CT, spec. Mm -hmm. These are all, as I understand it, different tests <laughs> that give us some information about what's going on, but they're not as intensive and costly as that cath procedure. So you can construct mm -hmm. this kind of curve and then you get these trade-offs between effectiveness, how much health are we getting? And in this case, it's derived from the information we get about what's going on in the patient's heart um, versus the costs. And mm -hmm. um, if we didn't care about costs, right, if we just wanted to look at effectiveness, we'd cath everyone, we'd get the most information. But these kind of, I'm working with um, some uh, imagers uh, at the Brigham um, who specialize in cardiac MR. Basically, you could get a lot of that information for a lot less cost using MR instead of cath. And so the value idea here is maybe that's where the bang for best bang for buck is. If we start mm. thinking about that cost dimension, um, it could be that um, the highest value option is not necessarily the most effective. How can physicians and hospitals become more open to adjusting the services they recommend to become more cost effective? It's a great question. Um, in my view, cost-effectiveness analysis is most useful when thinking about societal-level decision-making, so broad health policies. Um, and that kind of then feeds into how I think um, health policy responses um, can be shaped uh, to address low-value care or, or incentivize high-value care um, in this framework. So for example, Let's say there is a, oh gosh, it's, it's a tired example, but let's say there's a new drug. I hate picking on drugs because everyone does it, but it's probably the easiest to think about. So there's this new drug, comes out, um, and it is effective. That's good compared to like the current options, but it is very high priced. And if you do the cost effectiveness math, the cost effectiveness ratio is kind of very high, meaning it's bang for buck is poor. This is, this would be, I would call it a low value service in my research. So what, what, what can we do about this expensive but effective drug? I think there are two options. First, um, we can um, try to lower the price, we being, let's say, healthcare payers, um, trying to lower the price such that the cost-effectiveness combination now goes from low value to high value because we've helped reduce some of the cost to the system by negotiating for a lower price. And there are various tools that payers can use to try to do this. I mean, some is just straight negotiation. Others are maybe incentives. They could, they could put the drug in like a, threaten to put the drug in a tier with very high copays. So then the manufacturer wouldn't want that because less people would use it. And so there are ways to kind of negotiate the price down to convert a low value service to a high value service by just by the price. Um, and 
previous research has shown that like why does the US spend so much on healthcare? Um, there's this article called like it's the prices, stupid. Like <laughs> that's it's our prices that are so high. So 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 then my question is, well, which prices? Like, is it all prices or are some prices worse than others? And so using cost-effectiveness analysis to define value could say, hey, it's these prices that we should really worry about and try to lower, um, especially because they're for health-improving services. We would like to use these. They would help patients. It's just that they cost too much. So that's one mechanism. And then the other is, well, if we can't change the price, then these are just more services to flag and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't do these so much, kind of like we do for no-value care. So like choosing wisely campaign, other... Um, groups and movements towards um, kind of the less is more movement. If you've heard mm-hmm. about that, you know, they're th- trying to say, um, you know, we, sh- we don't have to do everything in healthcare. There's some stuff we shouldn't do. And um, if we are willing to, we can include low value services using this cost effectiveness definition um, in that space and say, um, you know, these are uh, low value and then a clinical guideline or maybe a set of quality measures used by hospitals or payers um, or physicians um, can then um, kind of include these low-value services as part of their as part of their measures for quality or appropriateness. Um, and these are ways to essentially nudge physicians, hospitals, and maybe even patients into towards high-value care mm-hmm. and away from low-value care. Hi, Think Research listeners. We'd like to take a moment to tell you about one of our upcoming online courses: industry funding, application process, and establishing industry relationships running February 15th through April 26th, highlights the differences between investigator-led research and industry-sponsored research initiatives and covers skill building around networking, mentorship, and communication. Expert speakers will share tips on how to engage with industry and succeed in obtaining research funding. This course is open to those both in and outside of Harvard. To learn more, visit the link in the episode description. Registration ends February 1st. Thank you and enjoy the rest of today's episode. Dr. Lin joins us in 2020 to talk about the power of baking and of great mentorship. In your opinion, why is it so important to have mentorship in a clinical and translational research career? It, it sounds very much like it's a critical component of it, and I just wanted to know your perspective on why it's so important. Absolutely. I, I think especially for a lot of the VRIP students that have come through the program, um, they may not necessarily have thought about a career in research. Um, right. And you know, uh, you know, you're already busy as it is as a medical student. So to have them have this experience, I think, is really important um, to show them, you know, the why why research is important, and and of course to try to encourage them to to go on to do that. Uh, and, and we've seen that. I, I think um, you know uh, we've had we have a number of different students that have come through our program. Mohammed um, Mohammed, Matt Enrique, Hamali um, Panchal, uh, Abraham Isaac. They were all part of the VRIP program. They were all medical students and, you know, they've gone on to do great things. Um, you know, some of them, you know, obviously they all continue um, in, in their line of uh, medicine. Um, Mohammed or Mohammed, for example, is an ER doc now at Stony Brook. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, but you start seeing, you know, we do see them start doing some, a lot of great research experience. Like Walter, um, Walker Keenan was a student in the SHRP program, uh, went to UCSF uh, for medical school and then yeah, eventually to Yale. Uh, now uh, for his, he's a resident in psychiatry. And all through that process, you can see, you know, how 
he has done research, you know, in, in various groups. Matt Enrique uh, was at Albert Einstein and he, you know, was, um, you know, had a special elective. And so he actually ended up, you know, in 2017, uh, coming back, he, he was initially in the program in 2015 to do, you know, some additional research with us. And I, it's, you know, great to encourage that kind of um, interaction and, and allow them to continue doing research. And we always encourage that. And we have another Hamali uh, Pachal more recently in 2017, where she continued to work with us and ended up getting a publication out of it, right? First authorship uh, in ice hockey uh, concussion. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it is really great to be able to continue these relationships and um, uh, hopefully encourage them to, to do research and see why it's important in their own clinical career uh, to be able to translate a lot of this kind of, you know, knowledge into clinical practice. And those are they're obviously, they're the best person, people to, to do that kind of work. Finally, in the summer of 2021, Dr. Tambe sat down to have a conversation with us about bringing together different groups of professionals to educate homeless youth in LA about HIV prevention. So before coming to Harvard, you were at the University of Southern California. While you were there, you partnered with a group in Los Angeles that focused on HIV prevention among youth experiencing homelessness. Tell us about that study and what the goal was. This work that you're referencing was jointly done with the USC School of Social Work. So I was in computer science and my colleague, collaborator, friend, uh, Dr. Eric Rice was in the School of Social Work. And so together, the goal was on the one hand to show social impact, to actually achieve social impact in the community of youth experiencing homelessness for HIV prevention. And on the other hand, advance AI research because AI had not paid attention to these situations which come about in achieving this kind of social impact through exploiting the social network of these youth. And so the goal of the study was to improve knowledge of HIV prevention behavior and cause those changes. There are 6,000 youth who sleep on the streets of Los Angeles every night. The rates of HIV among these youth are 10 times the rate of normal house populations. And so drop-in centers, other organizations conduct peer-led campaigns in order to spread information about HIV to reduce HIV risk behaviors. Mm -hmm. In a sense, you're trying to recruit key peer leaders because you cannot obviously talk to all 6,000 6, youth, educate them about HIV prevention, expect these peer leaders to talk to their friends and their friends to talk to their friends and information right. to spread in the social network. Now, this is face-to-face -face conversation. This is not over some other electronic uh, social media or something like that. Mm -hmm. The question then became, could we do something better in selecting the key peer leaders compared to how it was traditionally done using AI techniques? And the result was indeed that we were able to show that our AI algorithms for selecting peer leaders were far more effective in causing spread of HIV risk information and changes in HIV risk behaviors compared to traditional approaches. I'm so curious to so the AI techniques you used and what that means as far as we're talking about social networks and, and basically determining who within that larger network is the person who can disseminate the information, right? Who's kind of the influencer. 
And so I'm very interested to know more about what, what were the techniques? How did you, how did you get to that point? Awesome question. So the basic idea here is we want to select those influencers, those key peer leaders in the network who would obviously be able to spread the information in a way that reaches all of the different sub-communities. Mm -hmm. So this is a network where there are many different sub-communities, maybe youth who play basketball together, youth who hang out on the Venice beach together mm -hmm. and so forth. The initial approach that was adopted in earlier work was to select the most popular youth, the nodes that in a social network would have the highest degree. Mm -hmm. Selecting them makes sense. They're the most popular. However, they are all concentrated, if you will, at the center of the network, meaning they all know each other. They're very popular, um, but you don't then get to reach more of these sub-communities. Right. What we want to do instead is to select maybe one or two nodes in the center, but maybe the other nodes are more strategically placed. Maybe nodes that connect different communities are more effective in spreading information. What this AI algorithm is doing is not looking at demographic information. It's not looking at any other information other than purely the strategic placement of the nodes in the network. So if you imagine a network of something like say 300 youth, and within that we want to select, let's say 30 youth who are the peer leaders. You want to get that combination of 30 out of 300 that are strategically placed in order to spread this information. Mm -hmm. So choosing a combination of 30 out of 300, if you think about it, it's like 300 choose 30, that's a massive number of combinations mm -hmm. for us to think through. And the AI algorithm is essentially sifting through all these combinations to figure out what's the most effective way of putting together a coalition of peer leaders that would be most effective in spreading this information. So they need to be placed, you know, just the right amount away from each other, because if you just choose neighbors, that's not as right. effective. Uh, they need to be able to reach different sub-communities. So the algorithm sort of simulating through all of these different possibilities and then ultimately coming up with the right choice of peer leaders. Right. And often it is a surprising choice. It often ends up with youth who at first glance may not be the most popular youth uh, may appear to be on the edges of the network, mm -hmm. but they just happen to be the right youth for spreading this information. And that's what was uh, uh, clearly seen in the result of the experiment. I should say though, that um, the network itself is not given to us. So it's not as though we know the social network ahead of time. And so in the first pilot studies we did, our social work colleagues, uh, students of uh, Professor Rice, for example, would painfully collect this data by querying all of the youth in the study and doing field observations and so forth. And that in itself became a very complex operation. So mm -hmm. the next approach then was, could we sample a small fraction of the network? And the key is to figure out what nodes to sample. So in a sense, we don't know the network. Can we figure out what the network might be by sampling intelligently through a few nodes right. and, and then figuring out based on just that small sample that we have, who are the key peer leaders. The interesting part of the algorithm was the sampling and then also then selecting the right peer leaders. I'm actually very interested and fascinated by everything that you're talking about. One of the things you just talked about was the social network and how you know 
people kind of painfully collected the information to give you the information about the social networks. And I know in this study, one of the things you had to do in the study was map the social networks of the youth experiencing homelessness. How did you do that part? This is a very interesting question because often in computer science, the kind of work that was done on social networks for influence maximization for was often driven by, let's say, something like viral marketing, things of that nature, where the idea was that you are given a social network ahead of time. And then you go ahead, given that the social network is given, a very clever algorithm for selecting the right influencers. The problem in our case is indeed that the network is not given. And as I said, one approach would be to painfully collect all of that data, but that is not scalable. That's not going to work if you want to use this technique across many different locations. And so the next thing was to sample the network and to sample, essentially, you ask a particular youth, who are your top five friends or something, you know, some simple query that gives us information about their edges, the connections that they have. The key is to figure out who to sample, which youth to ask questions. And that's where the cleverness of our algorithm comes in. I should mention that the study was led by my great PhD student, uh, Brian Wilder, who has been the lead uh, in this work. And so he came up with this clever algorithm for sampling the right kind of youth. So you sample, let's say 15% of the youth, Mm -hmm. that's it, by asking them who their friends are. And then just having that much information is sufficient to then select the right peer leaders and and then proceed from there. What we learned here, as I've learned in my other work in AI for social impact, is that going to the real world to solve these problems that are of social impact often opens up new research challenges in computer science that we had not thought about. And this was one example because traditionally the work that is done assumes that the social network is given here, the social network is not given. And so it leads to some very interesting new research challenges. So in some sense, we get wonderful problems to work on in advancing AI, but these are not, you know, these are being driven by socially impactful applications. Thank you so much for joining us for this compilation episode. And again, Happy New Year. We're glad to be back. Until next time. 